The reading tonight is in Hebrews chapter 11, starting at verse 8. And it can be found on page 1209 of the Church Bibles. Hebrews chapter 11, starting at verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age, and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so, from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. This is the word of the Lord. Good, let's, um, let's pray and ask for God's help. Psalm 12 says this, The words of the Lord are flawless, like silver refined in a furnace of clay, purified seven times. Our gracious Heavenly Father, how we praise you that you have revealed yourself to us in your perfect word. And we pray, Father, that as we meditate on it now, that, Father, you would show it to be life-giving. Please, Father, by your Holy Spirit, please change our hearts to hear your word clearly and to respond rightly. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the subject of our passage this evening is one that's very poignant for me because I'm ashamed to say for a long time as a young Christian, 
I never really thought much about it. What is the subject we're looking at? Well, it's God's promise of a new world. Now, don't get me wrong, I knew that kind of heaven and the new creation were a thing. I obviously knew that Christians believe that something happens after we die. But those realities, I'm ashamed to say, never affected my life in the day-to-day. I thought, heaven sounds great. Of course it does. But I've now got a career to build. I've got a marriage to foster. I've got a house to buy. I've got holidays to take, a legacy to make. See, for a long time, I thought heaven is true, but it was just the cherry on the cake. But then God began to show me, through passages like this very one we're looking at this evening, that the future isn't just for the future. It affects everything in the present. See, we're going to see this evening that the reality of God's new creation should touch every detail of our lives now. And without it doing so, we miss what our faith is heading towards. And we find that we'll be the poorer for it. Now, how do we see this? Well, it's in the example of Abraham. Abraham is uh, the main character of our passage and of our talk this evening. And what's remarkable about Abraham is that his whole life was orientated around one promise. What's the promise? Well, it's there in verse 16. Instead, they, that's Abraham and Sarah, were looking for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. See, Abraham, um, if you're Jewish, is a real superhero. He's the father of the whole Jewish people. And God promised to him a people more numerous than the stars in the sky. God promised to him a land of milk and honey. God promised to bless his descendants so they could know God as father. But Hebrews says, look, aside from all those great things, the main thing you need to know about Abraham is he had faith in this new world to come. Now, why should we care? Why does Abraham affect you and me? Well, it's, be exactly, it's because we, that's exactly where we find ourselves as Christians today. Please um, uh, turn over to chapter 13, two pages along, and look at verse 14. And just spot what the author says to Christians. Let us, that's you and me, then go to, no, verse 14 rather, for here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. See, that's what I didn't spot as a young Christian. See, that the Christian life is about looking forward to the city to come. It's about having the end of the story affect every detail of the story now. In my downtime at the moment, I'm watching on Netflix uh, World War II in colour. I have a strange way of relaxing, I know. But it is a series that lasts for hours. I, I feel like I started it five years ago and I'm still working through it. It details every single detail you can imagine of the Second World War. And as you watch it, as you imagine, there's some horrific events, some unimaginable loss of life. But the reason you can sit there and watch it and not completely despair it's because you know the end. You know that peace is coming. 
I mean, it'd be strange, wouldn't it, to watch the battles, the gains, the losses, the chaos, and, and not being able to say to yourself, at least it had an end. And so it is with the Christian life. The end shapes every second in the present. And Abraham shows us how. I want to pick up on three aspects of Abraham's faith here. Uh, Here's your three points for your handout, so cross out the old ones. Uh, Faith takes a risk. Faith trusts the impossible. And faith rests on the resurrection. First of all here we, we see that Abraham is someone whose faith enables him to take a risk. Now, Abraham, uh, you might know, was called to go from the city of Ur to Canaan. And um, just to give you an idea of this, I've got a map. And uh, apparently you can't see it if I stand in the way because I'm massive. Um, But uh, can you see it now? Good. Guys at the back? Good. Um, Ur is here, just there. Canaan's over here. And um, the journey would have been, sorry, Clive, um, would have been uh, about 2,000 miles. So it's the equivalent of going from here, or it's more than this, but from here to Greece. And this is the days before EasyJet and Stelios. And Ur, we're told uh, at the time, is a place of prosperity, safety, security. It was a pretty sophisticated city at the time. And so you can imagine, can't you, just Abraham having a pretty cushy life, living in a big, nice, detached house with a white picket fence and a Labrador running in the front garden. But then one day, God calls him to leave. He doesn't tell Abraham where he's going. He's just got to pack his bags. And what's Abraham's response? Well, 11 verse 12, uh, 11 verse 8 tells us. Back over the page. By faith, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went. It's remarkable, isn't it? Abraham just obeyed and went. And uh, verse 9 tells us that for Abraham, that meant living as a foreigner in a tent for the rest of his life. Now, sometimes it's fun, isn't it, to be a foreigner? That's why we go on holiday. We like being in a culture that's different to ours. We like eating foods that we don't normally eat. We like seeing the sun, which we don't normally see here in Basingstoke, although it's a lot more sunny than some places. But it's only fun for a while, isn't it? I mean, it's great for a couple of weeks, perhaps at a push a few months, but after a while we get that feeling of homesickness, of feeling temporary. We need to get back to our own bed, our own shower, our own routines. Is that just me? Or do we have that feeling as well? But Abraham chose to leave the comfort of Ur and to swap his house for a tent and to live as a foreigner all because of God's word. Now, what's Abraham's secret? Why could he do this? Well, verse 10 shows us the answer. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And what's interesting about verse 10 is the contrast with verse 9. Because verse 9 tells us Abraham lived in a tent for his life. Tents don't have foundations. I hate camping, but um, I know that. Tents don't have foundations. Uh, But Abraham, uh, uh, that didn't matter to Abraham because his foundations were somewhere else. They were in the city to come. 
See, Hebrews shows us that if we're to live faithfully in this world, we need to have our eyes fixed on the world to come. See, we all need foundations, don't we? It's a basic human desire. It's why we build houses. It's why we build pension pots, because we need that feeling of security and permanence. But it's so easy, isn't it, to take our cue from the world and get that feeling of permanence from the house or the degree certificate or the savings account. But Abraham shows us a different way. He shows us that for Christians, our security is elsewhere. Remember Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. See, we're investing in the world to come. And that means in this world, we can take a risk. We can live in tents. We can be temporary like Abraham. See, he was happy to move. He was happy to live somewhere else because he knew that his foundations were somewhere else. A few years ago, I got to know a couple who were only a few years older than me. And um, they chose to live on this rough South London council estate so they could reach their neighbours with the gospel. And I'm not saying that council estates are bad. My grandparents lived on a council estate in London. I spent lots of my childhood on one. But it's not the sort of place you would expect a couple like them to live. But they felt convicted by the fact that no one is likely to share the gospel with that community. And even though it meant them not getting the dream house they might have imagined, they moved. Now, why would they do that? It's because they knew they had a home somewhere else. And I know there are other examples as I move around churches during my curacy and in my training. I get to see lots of great examples of that and lots of examples here as well of people who have not lived in the houses they might have or taken the promotions they could have. Or people who have not used their downtime just to indulge themselves, but used it for gospel work. Because they have their eyes set on what is permanent, investing in the world to come. You might respond, um, how can I really do that? How could I rest my whole life now on that future? When that future just feels so far removed... Perhaps for some of us, we're young enough to think it's decades away, or perhaps it just doesn't feel very real. Well, in our next example, in our second point, Abraham shows us how God can do the impossible. Now, strictly speaking, uh, Abraham, this whole section isn't just about Abraham, uh, but Sarah, his wife, gets a mention as well in verse 11. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past the age and Sarah herself barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. Now, we need to understand a bit of the backstory to these verses. Um, God promised Abraham and Sarah thousands of grandchildren, but there were two potential hurdles to that promise. First of all, Abraham and Sarah had no kids. It's difficult to start a nation with no descendants. And secondly... They were in their 70s. And when you read Genesis, you see Abraham kind of flags these 
problems up to God, but God insists that no, it will be through Abraham's son. But the years roll by and nothing seems to happen. And so they try and force God's hand and they get uh, their, their servant to sleep with Abraham. And she falls pregnant and she has a son. But God insists, no, it's through (coughs) Abraham and Sarah's uh, descendants. And 25 long years roll past. And then one day, Sarah feels kicking. She goes to get a scan. She learns she's pregnant. And that's not real. (laughs) And a few months later, Isaac arrives. And after Isaac comes Jacob, and after Jacob comes Joseph and his brothers, and after Joseph comes a huge nation, and after that nation comes Jesus, and from Jesus comes countless descendants by faith. And what's remarkable about their example is that God could have chosen a young couple to start this nation, a couple perhaps with plenty of kids already who are happy to get on with the work going forward, but he didn't. He chose the people you would least expect. The author puts it much more bluntly than I do. He says they were as good as dead. I'm sorry if you're in your 70s, but um, that's that's how Hebrews describes people in their 70s. See, God purposely uses what seems impossible to bring his plans about. See, how did God create the universe? Was it with a load of raw material? No, of course not. It was with a word, out of nothing. How does God bring his king into the world? Was it through a great coronation? No, it was through an unmarried peasant girl in Nazareth. How does God save the world from sin and death? Is it some spectacular show? No, it's through the bloody death of a carpenter. See, God doesn't do things according to what we think of as impressive. See, I don't know about you, but when you hear there's going to be a new creation, it just seems impossible sometimes, doesn't it? It's hard to imagine. It feels a million miles away from our world as it stands. And the thought of me changing my priorities now in this life, so I'm investing in that new creation to come, it just feels like I'm missing out. It feels so foolish. And we tend to think, as I did as a young Christian, if, if heaven happens, it happens great, if it does, but it's not really going to change my life now. But then we need to look at Sarah. See, Sarah didn't expect her life to change, but God worked the impossible, and he will work the impossible again. See, from her came a whole nation, and not just Israel, but every single Christian that ever lived See, because of her faith, Isaac was born, and because Isaac was born, Jesus followed. And if you think about it, the reason we are here today as Christians in Basingstoke, it goes back to this ancient couple who had faith, and God worked through them. How do we know this? How do we can be sure, how can we be sure that God will work the impossible again? Well, in our final point, we see a glimpse of how he will. See, um, from verse 17 onwards in Hebrews 11, uh, it turns to what one of my old lecturers used to call the hardest verse in the Bible. It's Genesis 22, verse 2. Because in Genesis 22, 2, um, out of nowhere, God appears to Abraham 
and says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. And Abraham says, okay. You hear that and you think, is God legitimizing child sacrifice? And you think, how can he be? Especially as you read in other bits of the Bible, God cries out against child sacrifice very clearly. But if you look closely at Genesis 22, you realize that there's more going on here. So you've got to ask the question, what does Isaac represent at this point? See, Isaac is the son through whom God is going to bless the world. Isaac is the hope of a new creation, of a new world, of eternal life. See, for decades, God has said, I will make you into a great nation, and it's going to come through your son Isaac. And now Isaac is here, and God is saying, offer him as a sacrifice. You're aware of the idea, aren't you, of a a paradox uh, where two ideas that are completely at odds with each other don't seem to fit. It's like telling someone to draw a square circle. Don't do it, guys. It won't work. See, here is another paradox. Isaac is going to be the father of a great nation, and yet Isaac is going to die. So why then does Abraham say, okay, why not at least have an argument with God or kind of clarify what he's intending to mean? Well, Hebrews tells us in verse 19, it says, Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. See, Abraham had so much uh, faith, so much confidence, so much assurance in what God had promised in this new nation that when God said, sacrifice Isaac, Abraham knew that God would find another way to keep his promise. And actually, if you look at Genesis, you see there are hints of that. When Abraham tells uh, the people he's traveling with uh, that he's going up to the mountain, he says, uh, I will be back with Isaac. And when Isaac is sitting on the wood and he asks his dad about the sacrifice, not realizing it's him, Abraham says, God will provide the sacrifice. And as Abraham takes out his knife, he does so knowing even the death of his son is no barrier to God's promise of a new world. See, Hebrews says in verse 19, Abraham is the first to see a resurrection. See, Isaac never died, of course. Just before he's killed an angel, again, this is not a photo, but uh, it gives you an idea, an angel swoops in and stops Abraham doing uh, the sacrifice, and a lamb is provided instead. But in Abraham's mind, Isaac was already dead. Abraham was so faithful that he believed that Isaac could die, but he would receive him back. So even death is not a threat to the world to come. We've all been to funerals, haven't we? I guess most of us. We've all heard the chilling words, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. We've all seen those we love fade to nothing. And God's promise of a new world where they'll be resurrected just seems a complete paradox to the reality. And like others around us, we can be therefore tempted to kind of cling on to life while we have it. I mean, as a younger Christian, I I believe the gospel, but it it kind of just managed to slot in with my life plans now. I look to build the career, build the investments, maximize the life experiences, try and make a name for myself, because I knew that death was coming. 
and soon I would be forgotten. But the game's completely changed. Death is not a threat anymore. It's just a blip for the Christian, a mere step into the future city. Paul says, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? See, when God says he will raise us to inherit a new creation, faith says, I trust him. And I can now live out my life on that reality. What's remarkable about these examples? That Abraham and others only saw from a distance, but yet they trusted God's word. But we, St. Mary's, have so much more data to work from. Because centuries later, on the very mountain that Abraham made this sacrifice, another son, the very mountain, another son was sacrificed. This time there was no lamb to be the substitute because he was the lamb. And when he died, it seemed like God's promises had evaporated with his last breath. But that very son rose to life again. And in doing so, God proves to the world that death is not the end. Because like Jesus, we will be raised and brought into the new city to come. See, it's amazing, isn't it? If Abraham could live by faith, seeing Jesus only from afar, how much more can we live by faith in that city, now having seen the Son raised to life? As we close, let me draw out three very brief implications. First of all, faith isn't just thinking. Uh, Faith is about trust. We've seen that this week and last week. But trust isn't just something we think. It's something we act on. I mean, we can't just say, can we, that we believe in a new creation, that death is uh, defeated, that everything will be made new, and our lives just go on like everyone else's. Look at Abraham. He went across the world. He clung on to the impossible. He offered his son because he was looking to the world to come. Martin Luther says this. I find this very helpful. Faith alone justifies, but faith is never alone. Second implication, live your life backwards. See, uh, as a younger Christian, I think I had the center of gravity on this world and this life. I thought, I'll maximize my life now, and then heaven will be the icing on the cake. But faith says, I'll work back from what is coming in the future, so that every day, every decision is investing in that world to come. Now, I can't say what that's going to look like for each of you. You need to take that away uh, and, and bring it before the Lord and think through what it means for you. But I guess if we're going to university, it means thinking, how am I going to use those three or four years for God and for others, not just for me to have a good time? If we're looking to settle down somewhere, I guess it means thinking, is this house, this place, a good way of investing for the kingdom? It might be and might not be. If we're retiring, praying that God will use that um, time to use it for the world to come. Third, faith can be flawed. Uh, We haven't really had time to focus on this, but it's worth saying, we've seen glimpses of it, that, that Abraham and Sarah were not perfect 
See, they had lots of wobbles. I mean, Abraham slept with his servant. Sarah laughed at God's promise. See, faith isn't about being good. It's about being able to trust, even in the mess. And perhaps for some of us, we know our lives are not what they should. Perhaps we've cared little about the world to come, like I did. Perhaps we still live with the consequences of bad decisions. But what matters is that we're trusting in the Lord Jesus today. Let's pray. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Our gracious heavenly Father, how we praise you for this truth. Forgive us, Father, when we, it slips from our minds, when we feel it's too impossible to deliver. Thank you, Father, for Abraham's example. And we pray for all of us, Father, that you would cast our eyes on that day to come. Please encourage us, Father, if we feel weary in the race. Please lift our eyes to that future, Father, if we've uh, let them drift onto this world. And please, Father, help us all to be like Abraham and to live by faith in that city to come. In Jesus' name, amen.